they looked at me. It's like, well, this one looks more like a UAV. Than, I said, okay, so from a mission and capability standpoint, this is just a cruise missile that has a different look and feel to it, but that's a cruise missile. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. With us today, Mark Van Droff, Captain, retired, Naval Academy Class of 1989, who most recently served on the National Security Council, and he was also with the Aegis Shipbuilding Program. And we have retired Captain Jerry Hendricks. Jerry is a Vice President of Telemus Group. He is an author and a Ph.D., focusing on Theodore Roosevelt's Navy, and was also director of Naval History and Heritage Command. Gentlemen, welcome to Preble Hall, and Mark, welcome back to, to your school. Thank you very much, Claude. It's uh, always great to be back here on the yard. We just got finished a, an incredible episode of the Joint Geeks of Staff, which is a podcast that came out of the Naval Academy Museum. It's our first spinoff from our NavyCon series, where we talked sci-fi, we talked U, current U.S. naval developments and strategies, and to be honest, I, I think we should just continue where we left off. You, each of you has about 30 years experience with the Navy. You know, I, I, I started with the Navy working as a contractor for PMS 400 a thousand years ago, 1993. So I've been working in some capacity in R&D acquisitions, Intel, and now education for close to 30 years now. Tough to believe. Let's talk over your overviews. Looking back now on your careers, where do you think the inflection points were for the U.S. Navy, both positive and negative, for places where we need to be today and tomorrow? I know that's, that's, a, I, that's a huge open question, and I thought you'd, there are so many ways, because, Mark, you have this incredible engineering background. Jerry, you have this historical and strategic background, and we can, we can go anywhere you want with this. So let me start... When you talk about inflection points, good and bad, let me start with an a few engineering inflection points, and then maybe we can transition to some of the, the cultural or procedural inflection points. But if I look past the, the time and you know, from the early 80s, I, I started my career at the Naval Academy in 1985, graduating with the, the glorious class of 1989, and was interested enough as a high school student in the early 80s who was planning to apply to the Naval Academy to read things like ships and aircraft of the U.S. fleet and Jane's fighting ships. So I started to, to be interested in things naval in the early 80s. And you take that to, to the time that I retired in, in 2019 as the CEO of NSWC Carterock when I retired from active duty, a few things stand out. The first inflection point technologically would be the rise of the vertical launch system, which I think is underappreciated for the leverage and capacity it ended up giving the surface Navy. And now the surface Navy for the, may for those, take, for those who aren't in the Navy who are listeners to Preble Hall, what is the vertical, what's VLS, vertical launch system? Vertical launch and systems. what makes it different from what we had before? So before that, for example, on ships, if you wanted to launch a surface-to-air missile, uh, and I'll think back to the early first four of the 
of the Ticonderoga class cruisers or the Perry class frigates, you had to install a surface to air missile launcher with a magazine that would be dedicated to only surface to air missiles. If you wanted to launch a land attack missile like the Tomahawk missile when it first came out, and we're now I think on generation five of Tomahawk, but the we didn't call it Generation One back in the in the late '80s when it came out. It was just the Tomahawk missile, which was revolutionary in, in itself. You installed a Tomahawk. We called them the Tomahawk box launchers because they looked like boxes, uh, and you would install that on a ship, and you had a Tomahawk launcher. You would have surface-to-air missile launchers. You would have, if you wanted to deploy an anti-submarine rocket, which was a rocket-assisted torpedo, you would have a separate launcher for that. And these were all separate pieces, on, separate of, equipment. pieces on the they, deck. They if, you looked on, if you looked at a ship of the 1970s, you can tell exactly what the weapons loadout was. Because it had all of these different launchers spread out over the ship. From both a capability and an ability to adapt and an ability, frankly, to that constrained your ship design, that was a major limitation until in the starting in the late 80s and growing through the 90s, the deployment of the vertical launch system, which was a unified launcher. It's set flush to the deck of the ships that it's installed on. It's now on all of our current Aegis cruisers and destroyers. It's going to be on the Constellation class frigate. It's been... Uh, adapted by a lot of our partner navies and, and, and of course, copied by uh, several of our adversary navies, the, the vertical launch system. But what that does is it allows one launcher to service a variety of needs and you can change out your packages depending upon your mission. So a modern guided missile destroyer, of you know, if you look at the uh, today... You can't see because we're on the podcast, but I'm wearing my DDG-113 USS John Finn golf polo shirt, uh, and uh, I'm extremely proud of the John Finn recently uh, during exercise FTM-44. Uh, she deployed a SM-3, the latest version of the SM-3 missile, and defeated a simulated intercontinental ballistic missile that had been launched from one of the Pacific Islands in the direction of California uh, as, a, as a test event, and she was able to defeat that ICBM simulate target. I mean, it wasn't a simulate target, but it was a target that was representative of a ICBM attack. That same launcher that contained that SM-3 could contain Tomahawk missiles designed to attack a launcher sitting on shore that was about to fire at you. It w could also contain an SM-6 missile that has the ability to defend the ship against advanced uh, surface-to-air and surface-to-excuse me, air-to-surface and surface-to-surface -surface threats. It's a, a high-end surface-to-surface missile. And future generations of that SM-6 will have the ability to strike other surface ships and hold them at risk, all from the same launcher. And the loadout then is dependent upon what that fleet commander wants to load out each of the ships with. So the the advent, and what we're seeing now is is the advent, the we've actually become in some ways, and we'll see what the next generation of iteration off the VLS holds, because we're in some ways now a prisoner of, own, of our own success. Uh, the success of the VLS has been tremendous at the 
flexibility it's given surface Navy assets. Uh, now we're at the mercy of what happens when the next thing you want to invent doesn't fit into one of those cells and what the next evolutionary approach would be in order to continue to increase that, uh, that flexibility. But I would say the biggest change in enabling the surface Navy to stay relevant has been the combination of ever more advanced command management systems. You can read that as the, the Aegis program, the Aegis combat system, the Aegis combat management system, and all of its now derivatives, uh, along with the advent of the, the, the vertical launch system. I, that, that was a real inflection point from a technological perspective that I think is underappreciated. Jerry? So I'll, I'll concentrate on two eras, one that predates me, literally, uh, before my birth, which is a uh, major transition period of the 1950s. And I think it's important to understand that because in many ways, uh, the Navy we have today is an expression of the vision that occurred out of that. So I'm going to specifically talk, uh, coming out of World War II, spe very specifically Rear Admiral Arleigh Burke uh, comes out of the war heads up essentially a long-range planning cell within the Department of the Navy, within the OPNAV staff, and creates what we call Task Force 70, which was a vision of what the Navy should look like in the 1970s. So uh, Burke gains a reputation as an innovator. Um, Burke pioneers a vision of the Navy that employs missiles. So everything that Mark was just talking about, uh, both with the uh, Mark 13, Mark 26 one-armed bandits, which were used to launch surface-to-air missiles that we originally had, uh, and then the VLS system, the vertical launch system that, that evolves later, this begins with the idea that first you're going to transition your naval force from a gunnery force that's based upon multi-calibers of guns in order to have an effect upon the enemy to a missile force, recognizing that and, and those missiles were created with the idea of, of, you know, how do we counter the kamikaze threat? How do I shoot down uh, these enemy aircraft that are attacking my ships with greater accuracy and greater efficacy? So that's where the missiles come from. It was the major lesson learned of World War II is we have to figure out how to defeat enemy air power that is threatening our naval forces. And so we make this tremendous investments in missiles. What's interesting is the 1950s is this, this uh, incubator of innovative technical and strategic change. Uh, for some reason, we get an Army general to be president of the United States for eight years, and he knows how to staff things, and he knows how to change organizational cultures and behaviors. So uh, he quickly identifies key personalities. So for instance, uh, Thomas S. Gates, is brought into the administration. He's a banker. He's brought in as the Undersecretary of the Navy in 1953. He serves there for four years. In 1955, he's elevated to be Secretary of the Navy from 1955 to 1957. Upon the death of Donald Quarles, um, he is elevated to be Deputy Secretary of Defense from 57 to 59, and then serves the last two years of the Eisenhower administration as Secretary of Defense. Why is that important? Because Thomas S. Gates is the guy who beginning to end supports this change of the naval force. And by the way, he has something to do also with the Air Force accelerating the advancement of its bombers and certainly the ICBM force. Uh, and in the end, he's the one who wraps them all together and puts a bow tie on it because we have the Navy's 
uh, SSBNs with an intermediate range ballistic missile in cooperation with the Air Force's ICBMs and Bomber Force to create the nuclear deterrent triad. That's Thomas S. Gates. Gates and Eisenhower also come back and they elevate Rear Admiral Arleigh Burke over 102 senior admirals to make him chief of naval operations in 1955 and says, go change stuff because of their frustration with sort of the, the hidebound um, energy of the Navy's leadership, the slowness of change. And so Burke is brought in, and then Burke identifies other pieces, people like William Red Rayborn, who he puts in charge of building that, the George Washington-class ballistic missile submarine. So you have that, that era. So that really is a determinative era in the modern age, where the Navy and the Air Force, by the way, go through significant change. Uh, and by the way, they are able to afford that change because Dwight Eisenhower, General of the Armies, cuts the Army by 500,000 troops over his eight years. So it starts out with 1.4 million people in the Army. At the end of it, he's under 900,000. Uh, and so Eisenhower... Is, is that how he's able to fund all these changes and yeah, advancements? Yeah, and balance the budget, by the way, three times during his eight years, which is you know, something that's just incredible to think of today. But Ike had this view of what he called the Great Equation, the balance between the U.S.'s economy and its national security, and he's going to balance that equation. So that's the first age of, of great influence. The second period is the 1990s. So I'm commissioned in 1988, one year prior to my colleague, um, and I actually fly missions um, in P-3 Orions, anti-submarine missions against the Soviet Union. I'm on top of Soviet submarines in the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic in the early 1990s before someone pulls the plug on what was the greatest computer game I ever played, sitting in, a, in an airplane in front of a big screen tracking submarines. Uh, and then that ends. And then we go through a really dramatic drawdown in the size of our force. We go from 594 in 1989 at the end of the Reagan administration uh, we go down to 400 within just a few years. We crash through 350 by 1997, and we, we go through 300 by 2003. That induces a tremendous risk-adverse culture within the Navy because you're not only drawing down ships, you're drawing down manpower, which means that the promotion system is becoming extremely competitive. It's the zero-defect Navy. It changes the way that we think about ourselves. Our very fitness reports changed format in 1995 to bring in new factors by which to judge us uh, that we could be judged against and then not selected for promotion. And it was a time when you worried about it. In my JO squadron, there were the CO walked in one day, picked out three lieutenants JG, and they got sent home. There were people who didn't make lieutenant when I was a junior officer because we were in the midst of a drawdown. It changed the way we thought. We became really risk adverse. And unfortunately, if you really think about the senior leadership that we have in the Navy today, they came of age in that risk averse culture. So they're not the cold warriors that we had just 10, 15 years ago who were JOs at the height of the, the, the competition with the Soviet Union. The people we have today are green eye shade guys who are here to balance sheets, make sure their program comes in with the zero amount of risk uh, and comes in trying to be on budget. We haven't been that successful, i.e. Zumwalt and LCS. But the fact is, is that's the culture that we have today. And I really think that the lessons of the 1990 have been uh, very detrimental to where we are. We need to shake loose of that 
in order to be become creative, innovative, and start moving forward again. To, to, go ahead, Mark. No, I, I want to. You're gonna you're gonna deepen and broaden, <laughs> deep and broaden whatever it is. Yeah. I, you asked me to go deep, and last time I went wide. The uh, um, if, if you're the quarterback, I'm not a very good slot, right? I'm not exactly where you want to be in the in the formation. But I do want to 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 key off something you said as far as the culture. I was a, a major program manager. Now this is in the in the 2010. So I took over the DDG 51 program in 2011. Uh, in 2009, 2010, I was the deputy program manager for the LPD 17 class. So for seven years, I was in senior program leadership of two major classes of ships, the LPD 17 and the DDG 51. And I could say this about my entire time as an engineering duty officer right up until the end. I, I was starting to hopefully sense a change in 2018, 2019, by the time I was in command at Carter Rock. Nobody ever asked me, hey, Mark, and this is my entire time as uh, an engineering duty officer, what can you do to make your operation more resilient? What can you do to add redundancy? Hmm. I was frequently asked, how can you make it more cost effective? That was the most frequent question I was asked. I was also asked, how can you improve the quality or the utility? You know, what, what new technology can you feel? That was the second to cost. And then third was, can we do this faster? When you're in a great power competition and you're in a realization of a great power competition, the questions that should get asked is how can we make this more redundant, survivable, able to take a hit and keep going, not just the platform, but the program. What happens if you have a, a supply chain interruption? Can you overcome it? Can you keep producing even if something bad happens to your supply chain? So that's, that's what I mean by a more resilient industrial operation. That started to become a question. And then the second question is, can you do this faster? Becomes a more important question. But we went through culturally within Navy and I would argue broader defense acquisition for a 15 or 20 year period going from the mid 90s to the mid 2010s of the predominant mandate was, can you do this more efficiently? And that was what was always being asked out of the, the department's acquisition and industrial operation. It, and if you value efficiency overall else, you make a set of choices that might be different than do you value redundancy. Jerry? So it's, it's this idea of efficiency and redundancy and the dichotomy between them that really when I was when I was a high schooler, the TV program, um, which was a miniseries, The Winds of War, came out, and and to this day I can remember two actors that I can still remember their names: Dennis Weaver and Richard Anderson, were playing senior commanders at Pearl Harbor, and I can still remember Dennis Weaver's character, who I watched in TV shows for years, making the yelling at Richard Anderson's character. The Arizona has gone down with a thousand men below decks. A thousand men below decks. 
Why did we have a ship that had a thousand men on them? That, those words still ring in my mind because my entire professional career has been driven by the idea that we have to make our ships much more efficient, much more manpower intensive, and we have to gain greater efficiency because men are expensive on board ship. So why is it that USS Arizona still rests at the bottom of Pearl Harbor with a thousand men below decks? Well, it was because she was a battleship. The assumption was she would go into battle and about 500 of those men were going to be need to run her major engineering and weapon systems. The other 500 were redundant there for damage control. It was expected that she was going to take hits below the waterline and that there would be flooding and that there would be problems. And by the way, her major engineering systems had redundancy all the way through them with the idea that if I lose a boiler, if I lose a shaft, I'm still going to be able to keep going. And so everything about our design. Now, we still have a tremendous amount of survivability that's almost by law driven into our ship design. But we have begun to try to automate or sort of do away with aspects of damage control and resiliency and crew size with the idea that the, you know, there are certain things that machines can do, but in battle machines will break. Um, and this is one of the things I'm, I'm largely concerned about with sort of our modern designs. Because um, for everything that you want to criticize about the inefficiency of steam catapults over electromagnetic aircraft launch systems, uh, a steam catapult, we have an idea of what happens if you take a weapon on the starboard, uh, on, the, on the forward starboard uh, quarter or bow section of an aircraft carrier. I'm still going to have the cats, the, the waste cats that are going to be available to me, and I know what the shock is going to happen to them. We still have not shock tested the Ford class, and I I'm, I'm suspect that, that uh, electromagnetic systems are going to be much more sensitive to combat battle damage than steam catapult mechanical systems. We need to start thinking about in our ship design, this ship is meant to fight and it's gonna take hits. And then, you know, so what, how do we do that? Do I need additional manpower? You need to man your ships for combat, not man your ships for peacetime efficiency. And I don't think that quite frankly, we have thought about that. That's not our mental culture that we are manned for combat. You know, that's true. That there's a, a deeply ingrained sense of this resiliency idea. This was probably 10 years ago. I was attending a, a Hask, House Armed Services uh, subcommittee on sea power hearing. And I think it might have been Lauren Thompson who was testifying before Gene Taylor's subcommittee, who was the, the, the representative from Mississippi that represented um, now, is it Litton? It's Litton Industries, right? No, oh, sorry, sorry. Huntington Ingalls Industry. Huntington Ingalls, sorry about which that. Which is. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Pas Pas I always call yeah. it Pascagoula. Pascagoula, right. right. So Huntington Ingalls was uh, originally a spinoff after Northrop Grumman had bought Lytton. They had bought Tenneco. They oh, yeah, so they merged the two shipyards. Then the, that company spun off. So it's now it's an independent company, not part of Northrop Grumman anymore, that owns. Uh, and really, they do a pretty good job of not having two separate ship. They're two separate shipyards because one's in Newport News and one's in Pascagoula, but they... They run them corporately so that they can gotcha. assist each other. And now that company, Huntington Ingalls, is branching out into other maritime activities. So I don't want to limit them to just uh, Good. two. No, I appreciate two, that. Thanks, two, Mark. Just the two shipyards in Pascal and Newport News. And I yeah. have a lot of friends who work there. 
but uh, but that's that's the the organization you're talking about, Huntington Ingalls. Yeah, down in Pascagoula. They own the Pascagoula so, yard. Yes. The, but the point was, and I, again, I, I'm pretty sure it was Lauren Thompson who said this. He was talking about street the Street Fighter concept and how you just had to build a lot of small ships, and they would have to be, you know, because they were expendable, like the old PT boats. You had to put a lot out there, and consequently, you couldn't put a lot of armor, et cetera. And Gene Taylor stopped, put, pretty much put the gavel and stopped him right there and said, when you're talking about expendable ships, you're talking about expendable people, and that is unacceptable. I was like, okay, that's, that was a really important, uh, important point. But, but this argument goes back you know, 200 years. We have a model out here of the USS Pennsylvania, not the battleship, but the ship of the line from the 1830s. And when it was built, there was an interesting congressional debate what do we build this massive ship that will be the largest ship of the line we ever build with 120 guns and 800 to 1,000 sailors aboard? Because if we lose that ship at sea, then we've lost all those people. Why don't we build five or six sloops or schooners for the same price and it distributes the, 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 uh, the danger to the sailors? So it's, it's this constant... But, but, but that's a great point, Jerry. Go ahead. So... Let me react to what you just said from both a moral and a practical standpoint. You don't want to build ships that are death traps Mm -hmm. and you don't want to send American soldier, sailors, airmen, Marines, coast guardmen, and now guardians uh, on, you don't want to send them on suicide missions. But we were, before this, we were talking about, the David Weber series in the Honorverse. And, and he said something publicly uh, when he spoke at the Naval Academy back in 2017 that stuck with me that is very true. It's not the responsibility of a military commander to suffer no combat deaths. It's the responsibility of a military commander to make sure that the deaths that are suffered are not for nothing that are worth the military objective that you are achieving. Now, we talked about, you started by talking about inflection points, and I talked about VLS. We could very well be at the beginning of at least two additional inflection points. One would be the shift. Jerry talked about the shift from guns to missiles. We could be at the point... And I think we're getting to the point where we go from missiles to directed energy as, a, as an inflection point. We've always had unmanned platforms because that's what a missile is. Uh, a missile is an unmanned aerial vehicle that you don't want to see again. That you're, and uh, uh, some of the intelligence community in the, in the, the U.S. intelligence community classify certain platforms worldwide as one-way UAVs. And I asked them when I was on the National Security Council, I asked a particular briefer, what is the difference between a one-way UAV and a cruise missile? And they looked at me, it's like, well, this one looks more like a UAV. I said, okay, so from a mission and capability standpoint, this is just a cruise missile that has a different look and feel to it, but that's a cruise missile. Uh, And they kind of said, yeah, okay. It's like, that's not new technology. Now, this one might be better because of what it brings to the fight, if we're talking about an adversary, but that's not new technology. Cruise missiles have existed since mm, early '60s, so we're, let, let's not you know, let's not get all 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 wobbly here. But unmanned vehicles, 
especially the ability to field a larger unmanned surface vehicle or a larger unmanned undersea vehicle that you would then be willing to do higher risk operations than you would with a manned platform is one potential inflection point that we might be coming up on. I hate to get ahead of the technology because there's we've seen the the you know the the road to hell in the United States Navy is paved with people who got out ahead of their skis thinking that this technology is going to change everything and then it didn't quite pan out but we could be close to that directed energy another inflection point that we could be close to and that would be what would change the nature of warfare not the nature of what of human conflict because that's based on human nature but the nature of how that plays out could be as big a change as what we saw when gunnery was replaced with missiles in in the 50s i like I think Jerry's thoughts on that. So a couple of things on that. One, another thing that we already have, we just sort of failed to conceptualize that or admit it to ourselves. We seem to have some hesitance about moving ahead with uh, automated intelligence. Uh, everyone's like, oh, you know, and, and they, they think of the Terminator and, and, you know, everything that kind of goes on with that. But the fact is the United States Navy has been very comfortable with automated intelligence since the 1970s. Every Aegis cruiser that we built has an automatic mode that because we built them with the idea of facing regimental formations of backfire bombers carrying a lot of air-to-surface uh, sh- uh, missiles, big, heavy school buses in the air that can come in and sink aircraft carriers, we created an automated mode that if we became overrun uh, with missiles and unable, on, you know, with man on the loop, to essentially discriminate which was the highest priority, we're going to insert the key and turn it, and then the Aegis system can begin prioritizing its target list and then choosing which one's highest and then starting to work down that list until it expends its magazine. That's been there. Also, close-in weapons systems, CWIS. I was a TAO on board an aircraft carrier. I know what hold fire off is. That means I'm no longer making that decision. And no one in CWIS, by the way, had a man sitting there and making decision, you know, that I'm going to aim it and then I'm going to shoot it and I'll press it and I'll fire a button. You know, I'm going to activate CWIS and CWIS was going to defend me. There are other things like that today. We've already sort of accepted that under extremists, there is automated intelligence type of processes that we would look at. But coming back to what Mark was was talking about previously about the other things, um, we we have this resistance to change. So, I mean, you talk, we talked uh, when we were in the Honorverse conversation about the Jean Nicole and, and Sonia Hemphel versus um, the, the sort of the traditionist school. Well, you'd mentioned earlier uh, essentially the Art Sobrowski school, which was very much a school about change and movement forward with new capabilities and new platforms. And to this day, when we get an automatic or an, uh, uh, an unmanned platform, where do we put it? Well, we put it, we nest it into the manned community. So MQ-25, which is the unmanned tanker, is controlled by the manned aviation community of the aircraft carrier deck. If you think about the, the Fire Scout unmanned helicopter, it was manned or, or nested inside the SH-60 uh, community. Uh, same thing with virtually every unmanned uh, Trident, unmanned uh, aerial surveillance, is nested within the maritime patrol aviation community. Why? Because, well, the official reason is that those communities understand the missions and that they'll employ those platforms uh, at the best. 
the the alternative cynical version of it is those communities want to make sure that they control that unmanned platform that it never competes with manned platform dollars and so they'll limit the scope of its evolution development and and we never really press how far that unmanned platform can go we never allow it to evolve to its natural limits because its natural limits might impinge upon a manned program and so if you don't create actually sort of a standalone unmanned community to really test where you can go with these develop con ops really test them uh, to their maximum capacity, you'll never really get there. And, and yet we sort of strategically have constrained the growth of unmanned capabilities thus far. I would also add, uh, beyond directed energy, uh, hypersonic weapons, because hypersonics are going to give us increased range, lethality, and survivability going forward. It really has changed the missile equation in ways uh, that we had not anticipated. So between directed energy and hypersonics, it will remake a lot of our traditional platforms. Let me so, take now. To, oh, go ahead. Mark, so please. one thing I would say is then an example from perhaps the Navy to look to. This will this will get all sorts of pushback. You'll get lots of negative comments on this uh, podcast when I say this. If you think about the Department of the Air Force, one of the reasons they one of the reasons for splitting out what had been Air Force Space Command into the Space Force and making it its own service where the Space Force and the Air Force now have a similar relationship as the Navy and the Marine Corps, two services under a single service secretary, but two military services under a, a one military department uh, within the Department of Defense. Space, no matter how you organize it, whether it's a, an Air Force MAGCOM or it's its own service, is entirely unmanned. Everything is unmanned in space. I mean, we send up the international space, but all of our military capability in space is unmanned capability. And it's a community that has evolved uh, in order to field and employ unmanned capability to achieve military objectives. Now, those military objectives in space today are, are largely limited to precision navigation and timing, communications, uh, and intelligence gathering. Uh, which is the what we use space for today. But that could certainly change, but I think they're well positioned to manage that change because they have a history of all they do is unmanned. And that might be a model for the U.S. Navy to look to when, and maybe other forces too, of do you need to have your own community and your own professionalism of profession of fielding platforms that are by their very nature unmanned rather than manned platforms. Because maritime platforms are not the only thing that we field that are manned. We man tanks, we man aircraft, we man lots of different things. And the question of many of those cases, some of that capability in the future could be taken over by an unmanned capability. Jerry? I would just come back. I had a really fascinating, almost mind-blowing conversation recently. Uh, where I was expressing my frustration that we had not moved ahead with unmanned combat aerial vehicles from a carrier deck uh, to be able to do long-range penetrating strike missions, which I really think is the natural mission for an unmanned platform. And one of the constant comebacks is that we're just not there yet on the AI, the automated intelligence brain, to be able to go in and do that mission uh, autonomously if there's sort of a breakdown in communication between uh, the launch platform and then that, that aerial platform you know, going to and from its target. 
Uh, and so what do you do if you're in a contested environment and we get jammed and what does the aircraft do you know, with its mission? It's a very complex computer program to sort of take over at that point in time and to be able to then you know, select your mission and so on and move forward. And so I was sharing this frustration with some engineers at a, we'll, we'll just call it an unnamed uh, space company. And, and, and they sort of scratched their head and looked at me and they said, you know, we, we put capsules up into space that stay there for months at a time without astronauts on them. And even when we're matched with the space station, you know, the astronaut doesn't go down every day and check the switch settings on that capsule. It self-monitors itself, and it has automated programs on board that if this happens, it will take that action. That's literally millions of lines of code that have been written into these capsules. And these capsules launch and go up, make very complex orbital mechanic moves, uh, you know, mate with space stations, dock, you know, undock from space stations. They come back, they land all on their own. And they have, there are rockets that are out there that go up and then turn around, come back and land vertically. So, you know, they kind of look at me and says, do you think that the mission you're describing is more complex than the one I've just described to you? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he says, I don't think so either. And so if someone from the Navy actually came and said, write me that, that series of if-then sequence statements to accomplish an unmanned combat aerial vehicle in a contested environment, he said, we could do that fairly quickly. We don't want to do that because, again, that mission will compete with the manned mission. And the manned mission will be degraded, and the unmanned mission will be elevated. And then that changes political equations within the service. And I don't think that we're comfortable with that right now. Again, we're comfortable with where we're at in the world, the status quo. We have no idea that the enemy has us firmly in their sights and is moving to engage. You know, we need to break, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, Pearl Harbor was the reason that we moved beyond battleships. Battleships still continue to have a role, don't get me wrong, but the carriers, those three carriers at sea, fundamentally changed the way that we conducted war after December 7th. And, and I'm afraid that we have to wait for another Pearl Harbor to be able to move ahead. Uh, we, we, we may have to do a whole nother Jerry and Mark debate about battleships World War II uh, and, and what did and didn't happen at, uh, at Pearl Harbor. Because I, I have a different view of the history. I'm not minimizing the role of the aircraft carrier in World War II, but we fielded, I think the last time I counted, 25 battleships during World War II. The U.S. had a, a fleet of what came to be 25 battleships. Two of them, Arizona and Oklahoma, were put out permanently at... Pearl Harbor, everything else that was damaged and not operational refloated and was, came re back. was refloated and eventually fixed. And then repurposed. And then repurposed. And I would not argue that they repurposed. They were purposed for one of the key core, what had always been a battleship, and then the the you get to the super battleships, the the Iowa, which are which are faster and 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 uh heavier guns in the in the later ships fielded during the wars with the Iowas. They were always Surf, naval surface fire support was always a critical capacity, a critical mission of the battleship. The other critical battleship mission was fleet engagement, the ability to defeat an enemy's battleship, which we did with other things. 
Air power. Air power, sub power. Right. So there were, we did with other things. Musashi and Yamamoto. Yeah. And at the end of World War II, we were left with the fact that the mission of defeating everyone else's battleships went away when no one else were, was building battleships. Uh, everyone else was kind of crushed by the war. So at the end of World War II, we were really the only ones capable of building battleships as the economies and, and of the rest of the world recovered in the, in the late 40s and the 50s. People weren't building them. We kept battleships around for naval surface fire support and then got rid of them, I would argue, today because we'll never again have the rules of engagement that you would need in order to... Because we're not going to pound coastlines anymore. The world's coastlines are so populated today with civilian populations, you're not going to get a, you know, let's go to Normandy and hammer Normandy for hours and hours and hours with with 14 and 16 inch shells because you're just never going to have the kind of rules of engagement that would allow for uh, that kind of imprecision fire. So that mission went away procedurally. And I get back to the platforms are driven by requirements. It wasn't that the technology got somehow supplanted that the aircraft carrier took over from the battleship. They do different things. It's that your need for battleships went away because the requirement, the things that battleships do, you don't need to do that anymore. Last discussion point for for our conversation. For more than 100 years, the Naval War College has led wargaming. It has been critical to, it was critical to the success of the United States Navy during World War II. More recently, last year, the Naval Academy Museum and the History Department here teamed up and established a new Naval History Wargaming Lab. I showed you guys the, the space we're going to be, that we're developing. Mark, I, I interviewed you recently for an article in Shipmate Magazine, and for our listeners, Shipmate is the publication, the magazine of the United States Naval Academy Alumni Association. So we're recording this on January 23rd, 2021, in about a week or two, this article will be coming out. But it was about a couple of uh, times that wargaming entered the fray at the Naval Academy. I, you were the one who put me on to what happened in the 1980s. Could you tell us a little bit about what that that program was, why you think it went away, and then we'll, I'd like to talk with you both about you know, why it seems to be reemerging, not only here. I mean, we're taking cues from McWill, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, and so many other people, West Point, Air Force, we've been working with. But tell us a little about historically, as a midshipman, what you experienced. So when I was a midshipman here in the late 80s, and, and my career would have started in the summer of 85, graduating in the spring of 89 as a member of the class of 89, there was a wargaming program called NAVTAG that was run out of Loose Hall. So it was run out of the out of ProDev. And there were some required, I think in one or two of the professional development classes, you ha- everyone had to do a little bit of NAVTAG gaming. Uh, and then it became a club and companies would compete. Now what NAVTAG was, was an early, and for... The younger listeners out there, you have no idea what those early desktop computers were like, <laughs> but you had an early circa 1980s desktop computers and, and networked together. This program would run on it. There were no graphics. You got a series of printouts that were words and numbers for each turn, and then you would type in what you wanted each of your ship and aircraft to do for the next turn. 
it was not wargaming the way the Naval War College would think of because it was not at the strategic or operational level. It was very tactical. Uh, you had, in any given scenario, a group of U.S. ships and aircraft and then a group of threat ships and aircraft. The threat was almost always Soviet Union in, in that, and at that, and their ships and aircraft. You'd be in a particular place in the world, and then the scenario would provide each team what their objectives were for that. And the turns were such that each turn was somewhere between six and ten minutes worth of real time, and a typical game would be played over the course of an hour and therefore take somewhere between a quarter, you know, six hours to a whole day's worth of time of combat, and therefore it would be very tactical. When do you turn your radar on? Okay, that radar now, you have contacts in this lo these locations. How do you identify those contacts? You've identified them. Now, if it's a hostile contact, how do I engage them? What are my rules of engagement? So can I shoot at this contact? Can I not shoot at this contact? Uh, those were the, what NAVTAG did. And the skill set in my mind that it developed was you got extremely good at our order of battle and the Soviet order of battle because you had to know quickly what weapons do I have to engage a particular target? What are the capabilities of those weapons? What are the ranges of those weapons? Uh, the game was played at the secret no foreign level. So it was U.S. capabilities at the secret level and the Soviet Navy had what we assessed at the time their capability was at the secret level. Companies would form NAVTAC teams uh, because it was played at the secret level, the plebes back then didn't have secret clearances. They usually hadn't been processed yet. So generally, you got your secret clearance at the start of your, what we would call here our youngster year, what other colleges would refer to as sophomores when you were a third-class midshipman. Uh, and so the upper class of a given company would form NAVTAG teams, and you'd go for an evening game. The game, like I said, would take an hour or two, uh, and you'd go to, to, to Loose Hall, and you'd be pitted against another company, you would randomly pull red or blue. So you'd, you'd know the scenario ahead of time so that you could study up and you got a red overview and a blue overview. And then at the beginning of the scenario, you got a package of information. Here's your forces, here's their initial disposition, here's their mission and their rules of engagement. And you didn't know, obviously, the other teams. All you, you got overviews to study beforehand and then you'd get that, you'd get a couple of minutes, short time to plan, and then you would fight it out. The lieutenants there in, in pro dev would be the referees and they'd be on the, the screen, the computer that showed everybody's, you know, the, the global view. And then you'd see who accomplished their objectives and who didn't. Uh, a team would be considered, declared the winner after that. And this became the computer geek equivalent of an intramural sport. It did not count as your intramural sport. You still had to, <laughs> to go play basketball or, or football. If you weren't a varsity athlete, you still had to do an intramural activity, drum and bugle corps, whatever it was, didn't count. But in the evening, you could do uh, nav tag. I did nav tag my uh, youngster year, my second class year. I started into my first class year, but because I was selected for VJEP and I was going to graduate school, I had to drop, so I couldn't play the second semester of my first class year. Why'd it go away? So I think it went away because, and I don't know because it was still going when I left, but I think it went away because the Soviet Union went away and because it was so focused on that U.S.-Soviet dynamic and it was designed to train 
midshipmen and junior officers in the Soviet order of battle. That's what it ended up doing, having an effect. So it was not an operational game. It wasn't really designed to think, teach someone to think geostrategically. You know, the war games that you played here with the midshipmen, Assassin's Mace, which I thought was a wonderful podcast when you talked about it and is a great idea. The one word of caution is, remember the Naval Academy is supposed to train junior officers. Uh, the, the organization that's supposed to train officers in command and staff. If you're training a field grade officer to be on the staff of a COCOM, ideally that service will send that field grade officer to a good war college, like the Naval War College up in Newport or one of the other services war college, which is supposed to train field grade officers to think at the operational and potentially strategic level. The The nice thing about NAVTAG is I thought it worked for its day and time here at the Naval Academy because it was so very tactical and therefore the 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 tactical imperatives of operating your ship, airplane, submarine, Marine Corps, rifle platoon or armor platoon, whatever it is that that young midshipman graduating and becoming an officer of the Navy or the Marine Corps is going to be at the 01 to 03 level, you, your life is very tactical. Mm-hmm your life can become operational and strategic once you're at that field grade level on those higher level staff. Yeah, fortunately, we're, all, we're fortunately we're also including more tactical games for them as well. Jerry, tell tell us about your experiences with war games and your and what you think the value of war games is based on on you as a historian. So, I mean, there's there's two paths I want to go down here very quickly. One is the time when war games really mattered how they really impact the Navy, which is the interwar period. We, we look back at that and we know of the effect that those war games had. You know, Nimitz later wrote that there was nothing about World War II uh, that surprised him uh, with the exception of one particular island campaign and then the dropping of the atomic bomb, that essentially everything else had occurred on the gaming tables at Newport and that they simply were executing a plan. There's a reason why when Spruance is substituted in for Halsey at the Battle of Midway and essentially given um, what, what we would consider in, in, in modern football parlance uh, an audible just to go to Point Luck, that that, you know, that was someone humming a few bars and Spruance picking up the rest of the tune. He knew what the game plan was after we got to Point Luck because we had played it. And Nimitz had been to the War College three times as a student and an instructor in the interwar period. So, but the, the war college was, uh, and the war games, there were only one part of it. There was a virtuous cycle that proceeded. You went from the war college war game to the fleet exercise, which were conducted every summer, and in fact, some of them were in the wintertime, where the ideas that emerged out of the war college war games were then practiced. And then after the fleet exercise, the lessons learned from that were actually fed back to industry. And there were changes in fleet design, both in ship design, gun design, aircraft design in particular. And then those changes are flowed back into the War College Wargaming cycle to adjust the game, update it with the latest iteration of technology, and then the cycle begins anew. And, and essentially, we're able to track at least 19 separate technological cycles that occur between 1922 with the introduction of the Langley and then the final games that occur essentially late 1939, early 1940. So really critical that sets us up for the win in, in World War II. Now, the thing about wargaming for me is that 
wargaming and constant iteration in wargaming uh, creates a suppleness of mind. So the I you know get introduced to simulations once I'm a junior officer and I'm flying and I'm in simulators uh, for a P3 and you know on a P3 Orion crew in the beginning I had 11 crew members uh, including myself. We were placed in simulators. We all had to perform our functions in very complex simulated environments. And then we go out and we we operate in the real world and we have that. And then. Later, I go to become a ship's TAO for a carrier, uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, and I have to go through a simulation school at Newport, and then I join the ship. And then while I'm on the ship, you know, at night, we would sort of uh, bring down the combat systems. We would turn over defense of the carrier to the Aegis uh, cruiser, and then we would go into a simulated environment and do various different things, you know, in the evening off the East Coast, West Coast of the United States to do this. And so... Uh, and that's when I got hooked on Larry Bond's Harpoon game. We loaded that up on, on desktop computers on board the aircraft carrier. And, and those of us who were geeks, we would sit there and we would play Harpoon uh, for hours on end. So in, in our off time, when we were not sitting TAO, we were sitting in front of a computer playing against the Soviet Union, uh, which was by then gone. But we would play because it created, again, this suppleness of mind to think about how we would take our fleet and use our fleet uh, against the enemy that that fleet at that time, the mid-1990s, had been built against. And, and to this day, it's, it's an interesting point for me as a writer and as a strategist and as someone who, who works in the defense community. You know, generally, you know, my whole day isn't spent on a single project. Uh, I will get up in the morning and I will write and think along one particular project that I'm working on. And then in the afternoon, I will pivot to a separate project to sort of keep progressing along both of them. In between, in order to sort of divorce myself from the morning project and before I can really begin to focus on the separate, I will play a game on my computer, whether it's chess or Go or Harpoon because I have the actual original version that I've got downloaded. I will play a game for 15 minutes in order to take my mind out of that environment I had been in the morning and, and, and cleanse it, as it were, in order that when I end the game, or at least that round of the game, before I dive down into something in the afternoon. So I find that it introduces a suppleness of mine um, and, and allows me to sort of always remain fresh, tactically and strategically. Um, I wish, quite frankly, there was an Honor Harrington game that I could play with, you know, hypersonic weapons and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, we haven't gotten that yet. So I'll, I'll take what I have. But I still, to this day, you know, I'm, I'm a 55-year-old man, and I enjoy sitting down and playing games because I find it to be a, a refresh of the brain before I move on to something new. Jerry Hendricks, Mark Vandroff, thanks for coming by Annapolis and Preble Hall. It's always good to see you both. Thank you very much, Claude. Thank you, Claude. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Preble Hall. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please leave feedback on any platform you're listening to it. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.